Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Hello. And welcome to Plotting Through the Presidents, where we dive into lesser-known stories of the early United States. The early United States? Yeah. You've changed it up a little bit. I like to change it up a little bit every time. <laughs> just a tad. Yeah. I'm just Dory. I'm Howard Dory. And today, I've got a wild story for you about Andrew Jackson. Ooh. And an interview with author David S. Brown about his book, The First Populist, The Defiant Life of Andrew Jackson. Hmm. Yeah, anytime you bring up Andrew Jackson, I feel just intrigued. Yeah, it's it's um, stories about Jackson tend to be... Morbid. Um, okay. <laughs> yeah, I guess you could call this morbid. Gruesome. <laughs> it happens, yeah. Horrific. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I can't disagree. So I talked with David Brown about how Jackson was the first populist president and how he had a lot of supporters, but also how some of his actions were really divisive. And that was never more true than in 1835, toward the end of his second term. Tensions were high, the political rhetoric was getting super violent, and that's when someone decided that Andrew Jackson needed to die. I'm sure he wasn't the first. Um, no, he actually wasn't. Or she. <laughs> um, it is a he. So before we get to our interview, I'm going to tell you about the first assassination attempt on a U.S. president, and the conspiracies that rose up around it immediately and the wild trial of the would-be assassin. Hmm. So conspiracies have always been a thing. Um, yes. Yes. <laughs> Got it. So let's set the scene. The Capitol building. Late January 1835. It's cold and it's wet. It's misting and it's going to storm later that night. Death was in the air. Literally. Yeah. There was a funeral at the Capitol for a representative from South Carolina named Warren R. Davis. Was he cremated? I don't think so. No, I mean, when I say literally, I don't mean like you, mean you could smell his ashes. <laughs> okay, so he, he wasn't in the air dead. No, no. So it wasn't literal. I mean, it's, it's really literal figurative. in that it's like you're at a funeral, so like death is in the air. Still figurative. It's a, yeah, it's a hard figurative. <laughs> All right, I, think it, I think it rounds good up luck to continuing. literal. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so everybody in politics at the time is there, including John Quincy Adams, John C. Calhoun, John Tyler, Davy Crockett. They're all coming to this funeral. Mm -hmm. And Jackson is there too. And he looked pretty close to death himself. It was a rough winter for him. And he was in the midst of one of his sick, painful, usually confined to bed periods. But he made it out to show his respects, even though he needed to be supported as he walked by his cane and by Secretary of the Treasury, Levi Woodbury. Alrighty. As Jackson is leaving the building, walking out onto the rotunda with the crowd, a man suddenly appears from behind a pillar, just eight to ten feet away from him, and he whips out a brass-handled pistol and shoots at Jackson. Everybody hears it. It's aimed right at him. And Jackson's friends check to make sure he's okay, but he doesn't seem to be shot. Then... That's right, he's invincible. Yes. 
Then the guy whips out another gun and shoots at the president right at his chest. Wow. Two guns? He, he, did he have more than two? Yeah, I think he only had two. Wow. He went to gun world <laughs> and, <laughs> he must and have. tried to assassinate Jackson. Yes, the old gun world. Well, I passed one the other day. It was really odd. Yeah? Yeah, in Burbank. Oh, it interesting. It was a gun world, and I passed it, and I was like, that exists. Yeah, I mean, it is, it's a little weird it's to see place. stuff like that in California. When I went to Texas for work, like, as soon as I got in the Uber from the airport <laughs> on the radio, it's like, are you looking to get rid of some of your old guns and come down? And I'm like, wow, this oh, is a different state. <laughs> it's just, a, to- it's just, it's just a, a totally, it's a culture. Yeah. Different, different, yeah. Very. So the, the guy whips out another gun, and he shoots at the president again. Same thing happens. Boom. But he's not hit. It's just a bad aim, I guess. The aim was not bad. <laughs> he was shooting like right at the guy, like from eight feet away. So maybe they were blanks. They weren't blanks. <laughs> Everyone's surprised by this, including the shooter. Um, and at this point, Jackson goes at the man with his cane. Oh, <laughs> right. It's been written that Andrew Jackson beat this guy with his cane. And I want to believe that. I mean, I did believe that. Um, that was mentioned in my article, Andrew Jackson was a real-life horror movie monster. Right. Um, which I just updated, even though it's a much better story that way. Um, <laughs> but in researching this now, I found out that the truth seems to be that he only tried to beat the guy with his cane. So it's less, Andrew Jackson would never do that. <sighs> and more, Andrew Jackson didn't have a chance to do that. What happened? Um, then he felt the wound of the bullets no. actually enter his body? No. Navy Captain uh, Thomas Gedney... Um, grabbed the man and subdued him. and The gunman? Yeah, the gunman. And subdued him before Jackson could start beating him. Oh, One report said that the crowd was yelling, kill him, kill the assassin. Oh my gosh. Um, but Gedney and apparently Davy Crockett as well. Davy um, Crockett. <laughs> yes. Hauled this guy off to be taken to the police and the court and stuff. So both guns were fired right at Jackson, but no one was hit. So let's talk about those pistols. Yeah, what on earth happened? Something was wrong. They were examined if, uh-huh. as best as they could do back in the 1800s. It wasn't so they quite called CSI. Someone, they called someone from Gun World to come on out. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, it sounds like they were like, let's take everything apart, see how it's loaded, and then let's shoot. Um, and it worked. It worked perfectly. There was nothing wrong with the guns. But witnesses couldn't completely vouch for a clean chain of custody with those guns either. So there, there might be some room for error. Mm-hmm. Some people took this as evidence of divine intervention, a miracle. Instead of a miracle, it may actually have been humidity. What? Which is like the opposite of divine. Interesting. Because it seemed like the percussion cap went off. That's like a little metal piece that's supposed to ignite the spark that lights the gunpowder and sends the bullet on its way. Okay. So that's why it made a, a loud clicking noise, a loud that's noise. That's more than I've ever known about guns in my life. Yeah, me too. Me too. <laughs> Um, but somehow this happened, but the gunpowder itself didn't ignite, which could have been due to the rainy weather and being kept under Lawrence's coat <sighs> as if his body was its own like hot, sweaty rainforest. I don't know. Ew. Um, Gross. But that's the best guess as to what happened. But it fired. The thing fired that was supposed to light the gunpowder, but the gunpowder didn't ignite. Okay. Someone estimated that the odds of both guns not going off is one out of 125,000. Wow. I'm not sure if that accounts for the weather factor, 
But Jackson definitely came closer to death in that moment than he ever had before, except for the several other times where he was also really close to death. (laughs) Via gunshots. Yeah, and bleeding out and um, illnesses. Yeah. He's like, no, Michael Myers. Yeah. He He just keeps getting up and continuing. He does. Or Jason, yeah. Jason. Yeah. That was my first reference. Yeah, I'd go with Jason more because I feel like Andrew Jackson cared more about his family than michael myers <laughs> okay yeah so it's a more um more accurate comparison yeah yeah i think more like jason because yeah. andrew jackson was always just trying to kill those teenagers having sex. yeah we're we're all about accuracy yes <laughs> <laughs> as much as possible now let's talk about this would-be assassin his name was richard lawrence he's about 35 years old born in london but he lived in the u.s since he was 12 and he was a house painter. Mm-hmm. At least he was trained to be a house painter. He hadn't been able to hold a job for very long in a couple of years. And he preferred to just paint landscapes in his room. It's nice. Yeah. And gentle. <laughs> Why couldn't he hold down a job? Um, we'll get to that a little bit more. But he couldn't hold down a job because there was there was a lot going on with him. Okay. Well, yeah. apparently... He, some humidity up in his coat. Ex- yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Got um, some hot air up in there. Yes. He was a bit of a nobody in Washington, D.C. He wasn't, you know. Was everyone well a somebody? Um, I mean, there were a lot of congressmen. It was a small town, and there mm-hmm. was a lot of, you know, bigwigs. Since he had a lot of time on his hands, he'd come to a lot of sessions of Congress to watch the debates and the heated rhetoric. Ooh. But Jackson had no idea who he was, they'd never met. In Jackson's mind, this guy was a hired gun, a pawn in an enemy plot to take him out. Wow. Yeah. In fact, as soon as Jackson's already weak and now rattled body was led into a carriage back to the White House, the conspiracy theories began. I'm sure they did. Jackson said, I know who is responsible for this. So Jackson started the conspiracy theory himself. <laughs> you know, pretty much, that's yeah. That's new. Yeah. I mean, very old, apparently, but that's that's... Different. Yes, yes. A pro-Jackson newspaper, The Globe, had its own idea about who was to blame. John C. Calhoun. Ooh. Well, he's to blame for everything. <laughs> yes, that walking, hairy-necked nightmare. He'd been Jackson's vice president in his first term, and that went sideways. We talked about that in our um, season one episode, Andrew Jackson's slut-shaming evolution. <sighs> but now, Calhoun was in the Senate. And he was a bitter political enemy of Jackson's, and it was getting personal. Calhoun had been leading the charge to investigate Jackson and patronage, which is when you give jobs in the government to your political supporters, like Mm. as rewards. Okay. Calhoun was exposing that the post office was full of this kind of corruption and calling out the irony of Jackson running against corruption, basically like the original drain the swamp, when when really he's filling it with his friends. Mm Mm-hmm. So, yes, echoes of the past, for sure. Calhoun had gone a little too far in his language, though. He said that Jackson was acting like a Julius Caesar in need of a Brutus. Ooh. Yeah. How dare he? (laughs) So that was enough for this newspaper to say that Calhoun's violent rhetoric had inspired this deranged man to try to kill Jackson. Yeah, Mm -hmm. definitely. Calhoun did not like that accusation. He brought his big, mad feelings to the Senate, where he read the newspaper aloud, and he said, this is an outrage. He said that it asserts that he who denounces abuses and corruption, be they ever so great, 
instigates assassination. <laughs> but I mean, um, he may be right. I hate I, to say it. I feel like there's a line though between pointing out corruption and saying, "Hey, this guy over here really needs to be killed." <laughs> It's a blurred line. It is a blurred line. It continues to be a blurred line. Oh, yeah. But as much as Jackson hated Calhoun, that's not who he blamed for the assassination attempt. Jackson was sure the person behind this plot was a man named George Poindexter. Wow. Yeah. George Poindexter was a senator from Mississippi who had a lot in common with Jackson, really. Um, Mostly a temper. And the fact that they'd both killed men in duels. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a club to be in. Yeah. Seems like a big club, though. Um, It was a bigger club then than now, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Is there a club now? I'd like to join that club. Wait, really? No. Okay. No, I wouldn't. Um, I want to join that club as much as I want to get a membership at Gunworld. Okay. All right. Bucket list. Yeah. <laughs> I'll add it on there. There you go. <laughs> Poindexter, he'd once been a supporter of Jackson's and may have expected some sort of diplomatic appointment somewhere as a result. Whatever the case, he didn't get that. And these two drifted apart, Hmm. far apart. Mm -hmm. Poindexter had become an extremely vocal opponent of all of Jackson's policies. Um, Jackson's war on the bank, nullification, whatever Jackson thought, Poindexter was against. Mm -hmm. And the hatred and the insults went both ways. I mean, neither of them sound like mature people. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I can't argue with that. Um, (laughs) According to one account that I read, and I had trouble finding corroborating evidence of this, so I'm not positive this is true. But according to this, it it got to the point that Poindexter had a friend go to the White House on his behalf to challenge the president to a duel. And Jackson's response was that Poindexter wasn't enough of a gentleman to be worthy to duel with him. Wow. Because Jackson said... He was in the daily habit of horsewhipping his wife. Holy horsewhip. Yeah. So, I mean, it's like you're not worth killing. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of what it's what he's saying. Basically, well, I mean, duels were like a gentleman's thing, like an honor. Yeah, thing. but like, to say you're not even worth killing. Yeah. Poindexter took great offense to that, as you might imagine, reportedly. Um, was he a horsewhipper? Um, Domestically? I, I couldn't find evidence of that. It's possible that his wife was dead at this point also. Oh. Um, but he may have been he may have been in um, a non-consensual relationship with um, a woman that he enslaved. What the F? Yeah. Whether the horse whipping refers to that or if it was even a real accusation, I don't know. But there's a lot going on with this Poindexter guy. Yeah. Yeah. Wait, th- but this is not the house painter. No. Okay. This is the man that Jackson accused of hiring the house painter. Okay, so I him. feel like there's just a lot of ill people. <laughs> there's a lot story. going on. It, there's a lot going on in this this misty city. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Poindexter took great offense to this, as you can imagine. Yes. He publicly denied the charge, and he accused Jackson of slander. And he even had his wife back him up, if she was alive. Unclear. <laughs> um, but I don't know, like... To back him up, I feel like that's probably what someone who was horsewhipped daily would, would do. do. Yeah. yeah. So how do you believe that? You can't. Yeah. When someone says, my husband does not horsewhip me daily, <laughs> I have questions. Right. <laughs> Number one, why are you saying that? Yeah. And, you know, would you be horsewhipped if you didn't? Exactly. Yeah. Huh. Catch 22. Yeah. People often defend their abusers. Yeah. That, so well, that's even if she believes she wasn't. Yes. Yes, it is. It is sad. Yeah. 
Then suddenly someone shows up to shoot the president and Jackson is sure that it's Poindexter. Then Jackson somehow got two sworn affidavits from people saying that they saw the shooter, Richard Lawrence, at Poindexter's home multiple times. Okay, then. Tying the two together. That seems logical. Their names were Mordecai Foy. Oh, I like that name, too. And David Stewart. Oh, boo. I know, right? (laughs) Yeah. You had every opportunity. (laughs) Any name that is, like, impossible to Google because there's going to be a million... I automatically yeah. don't care about you. Have you have different reasons for hating it. Yes. I'm just bored. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just bored by it. <laughs> um, so they swore that Lawrence and Poindexter were up to something. And it leaked to a newspaper that Jackson was holding on to these affidavits. I'm not sure what his master plan was for Poindexter, but Poindexter found out about this and he demanded an investigation. How likely is it that someone who just doesn't, they just don't like each other would hire an assassin? It That's, doesn't. That it, goes a whole new level. It doesn't seem super likely, does it? But it's, this is a this is a world where people are, you know, sometimes killing each other in duels. I mean, that's true, though. And you know, according to one story here, Poindexter had wanted to duel Jackson. Jackson right. said no. Right. It so doesn't. He's like, well, I'll get someone else to do it. Yeah. How how about that? And it won't be a duel mm-hmm. because only one guy has a gun. How? Maybe, you know, he has two guns though. <laughs> so it's kind of <laughs> like a duel in that there himself. are two guns. But they both didn't fire. No. It's it's a failure of a duel in a lot of ways. So Poindexter, he was pretty much openly being accused of trying to kill the president. And he wanted his name cleared. <laughs> his dear name. Yes, his Poindexterous name cleared. <laughs> so there was a Senate investigation. And these guys, Mordecai, Foy, and David Stewart, who wrote the affidavits, were questioned. And their story fell apart. One mm. of them didn't even know where Poindexter lived. <laughs> And the other one didn't know what Lawrence looked like. So it was like, it was like my cousin Vinny and Poindexter's name was cleared. Probably not as entertaining as my cousin Vinny. (laughs) Probably not. Probably not. It doesn't get more entertaining than that. It doesn't. It doesn't. So when that happened, when it turned out that these accusations against Poindexter were baseless, a lot of the public opinion and outrage that had been directed at Poindexter was then redirected back at Jackson for baselessly accusing someone of a murder plot. Mm. This is like days of our lives. <laughs> yeah. Leave it to Jackson to take the goodwill of surviving an assassination attempt and then squandering it by raging at his enemies. <laughs> but people loved him for it. They did. Um, I don't know if they loved him for that, but it wasn't enough to hurt him because mm-hmm. he was leaving the presidency in a year anyway. But mm-hmm. Poindexter, on the other hand, he couldn't turn the goodwill into future success. He lost his reelection bid to the Senate, and he spent the rest of his days back in Mississippi. Oh, so it killed his career. Yeah, yeah. So not all press is good press. It's true. It is true. Another factor in clearing Poindexter's fun-to-say name was the trial of Richard Lawrence. And I love me a good old-timey one-day trial, and this one didn't disappoint. Good for you. So first up, Good for all of us. <laughs> I hope. Let's hope. Let's see. <laughs> um, first up, there was a question of bail. Like, what should the bail be set at? Mm-hmm. For Poindexter? Yeah. Okay. No, 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 no. For Richard Lawrence. Oh, sorry. I just identify him now as the painter. It's That's fine. But maybe the, the painter assassin. <laughs> yes, yes. There you go. So there was a question of what should the bail be set at? Because the crime of attempted murder was a bailable one. At that point. 
The only way you could be held without bail back then was if you were accused of a capital crime, like murder. Oh, I see. Yeah. So trying and failing to murder, not a capital crime. So if you were finished with your crime, if you were all done, if you completely murdered someone, (laughs) they could keep you locked up. Okay, But attempted murder... You get to walk free. Yes. Perhaps just to try it again. Exactly. If you weren't quite done, they (laughs) give you another chance. That makes no sense. It does not make sense. Um, They settled on a bail of $1,500, which, you know, was more back then. Mm -hmm. But still, for $1,500... You can go kill again? You can take another go. Why not? Yeah. Um, For Poindexter, that might be worth it. If Yeah, it'd be real weird if Poindexter bailed the guy out, though. I don't think that would look good. Right. It would be weird if you used the same assassin. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> it's like, come to my house. Let's try this again. Yeah, I got two more guns for you. <laughs> Let's try these guns from Gun World. Um, so nobody cared enough about Richard Lawrence to bail him out, though. That's too bad. He didn't have any family. You said he lived with family. Oh, he did have family. But nobody cared enough about him to bail him out. Oh, that's depressing. Well, we'll see why. Um, did he have a horse whip as well? He, he no, I'm not not a horse whip. Jeez, okay, get to it. <laughs> okay, so with this trial, there was never any question of guilt because this all happened in front of thousands of people. There was no denying what Lawrence did, so it wasn't about guilt. It was about insanity. Okay. If the defense could prove that he was the right kind of insane then he could be found not guilty and go to an asylum instead of prison. What kind of insanity would lead him to an asylum instead of prison? So so there was talk in the trial of, of monomania and something called astromania and partial insanity and total insanity. And with partial monomania. insanity... Monomania? Yeah. I guess that's where it's like a one-focused thing. I'm not sure. These terms aren't used anymore. Okay. Um, but with partial insanity... There are moments of lucidness, and you had to prove that the crime didn't happen during one of those moments of lucidness. That sounds really tough. It's a little weird, um, but yeah. So the prosecutor trying the case, by the way, um, was Francis Scott Key, who a decade earlier had written the Star-Spangled Banner. I was going to say that name sounds very familiar. Yeah. So he was a lawyer? He was the prosecutor, yeah. And a writer? Uh, Yeah. A a songwriter and a prosecutor. Yeah. Uh, Maybe. You know what? He just wrote the poem and someone else wrote the music. I think the tune might have been an even older tune that goes back to like England. Um, Back to England. Yeah. Wow, that seems to defeat the purpose. I agree. (laughs) Yeah. So I'd like to think that he had the same dramatic flair in the courtroom as that song has. But Mm -hmm. that doesn't (laughs) seem to be the case. (laughs) <laughs> that'd be funny if he was arguing his case with uh, lyrics yeah <laughs> oh say could you see him <laughs> because his rockets did flare <laughs> his but bombs were bursting in the in air, air but not, not not enough not to kill jackson because he was still there <laughs> yes and that's all she wrote <laughs> yes so yeah francis got key didn't have so much drama but lawrence the defendant had plenty of drama himself We know this. At one point during the trial, he stood up and he proclaimed this. He's not on the stand at this point. He just stands up and he says that the reason he tried to kill Jackson was because the Bank of the United States owed him money and Jackson was trying to close the bank. Well, yeah, of course. A marshal told him to chill out. And Lawrence said, hey, it's not your job to tell me what to do. I tell you all what to do. Lawrence said that? Yes. So he might not be lucid. In that moment. (laughs) Perhaps not. 
So the defense knew that this wasn't great for a defendant to stand up and start talking about why they did the thing that they're accused of. So the defense it's attorney... Not the best. No, not <laughs> ideal. So the defense attorney asked the court to let Lawrence be dismissed. Like, can my client, like, leave his trial? Yeah. Um, because clearly it would be a lot easier to defend him if he weren't actually here. If. But that motion was denied because it was so unusual. Yes. At the trial, it came out that Richard Lawrence believed he was Richard III, the King of England, who had died in 1485. Wow. And he believed that Andrew Jackson was the one thing standing in his way of being crowned as the King of England and America. Yeah, there's some delusions. For sure. Two of his brothers-in-law... Poor guy. I think he might have been schizophrenic, is what it sounds like. It it definitely does. Oh, man. Two of his brothers-in-law testified about the recent change in Lawrence... Apparently, within the last 18 months or so, he went from being relatively normal to being paranoid about all kinds of things. Um, Not just that he was being kept from his rightful place in the monarchy, but also things like he believed his tailors were conspiring to ruin his clothes. Mm -hmm. Um, There's also a recent history of violence. He beat his sister once, and he had to be stopped from attacking her with a four-pound paperweight at one point. Yeah, things were not going well for him. No. Or his family. No. He'd had to move from one place to another because he kept getting in trouble. But not enough trouble, apparently, for the law to do anything. One time he threatened to kill his landlord and his landlord's wife if they challenged him. (laughs) Um, But was he arrested? (laughs) No. No, just kicked out. Uh, Maybe being arrested could have gotten him help. It's possible. It's not like there's psychiatric help that would have really... Yeah, yeah, it's doubtful that he would have been rehabilitated, but maybe he would have been removed before he could do more damage and in a place where he could at least be, I want to say treated, but I'm not sure what treatment looked like in asylum back then. Ugh, probably terrible. Yeah. He was also in the habit of firing pistols out his window at night, which is not cool. That's not good. No, no. And never arrested? Um, no. Wow. One of his cousins testified that Lawrence's father was also deranged and confined in England. Um, and the same thing with one of his aunts, who I guess was in an asylum in, in D.C. Yeah, it can be genetic. Yeah. The defense had seven doctors testify that Lawrence was insane. Wow, and that the, should do it. Yeah, they all had their own reasons. Um, one said that there was a particular expression in the eye of the accused, which a medical man can at once perceive, although he may not be able well to describe it. So... He's guilty because he has crazy eyes. <laughs> I mean, I can spot some crazy eyes. I can't, I can't disagree with that either. Another doctor said that a symptom of Lawrence's monomania was his insensibility to external cold. What does that mean? Um, he was observed by a prison keeper to, he said, he'd let his fire go out on the coldest day and sit in his shirt sleeves. Oh, so he wasn't feeling the cold. Apparently. I mean, he probably still froze. Yeah, maybe. Um... In addition to that, there were paranoid delusions, talking to himself, staring off, mania, incoherent rants, and depression. It's sad. Yeah. All the doctors agreed that even though Lawrence could seem normal for brief periods of time, in their examinations, he always quickly drifted toward talking about his delusions. It always came up. Mm-hmm. And they were all convinced that he wasn't faking it. Mm. To me, it seems like paranoid schizophrenia. Yeah, poor guy. Yeah. Interestingly, one of the doctors said that the violent charged political arguments at the time in Congress and in the newspapers could have influenced Lawrence. So that's a concept that we're still wrestling with. 
Right, because, I mean, when you're delusional, I think media does impact you. Yeah. So he may have had a delusion about what he was reading. Yeah, I mean, it was he was susceptible to being radicalized, basically, yeah. you know? I feel really bad for him. And I have no sympathy for Jackson whatsoever, even though I like hearing about him. Mm-hmm. I feel worse for the assassin. <laughs> I get it. I mean, this is clearly not um, a well guy. No. Yeah. Richard Lawrence's defense didn't even bother with a closing argument. Oh, really? Instead... Uh, they just cut it short right there. I'm like, okay, take him away. Well, no, they said... You, I mean, you've heard seven doctors say the guy's insane. Yeah. We're going to leave it to you to decide based on the testimony. So the jury returned in about five minutes with the verdict of not guilty due to his having been under the influence of insanity at the time he committed the under act. Under the influence of insanity. Yeah. Wow, that's one way to put it. The report of the trial said, the court then ordered that Lawrence should be remanded and be made as comfortable and treated as well as his situation would permit until some further provision could be made to prevent him from doing further mischief. At an asylum. Yeah, he was kept in insane asylums until his death 26 years later. That's a long time to live in an asylum. Yeah. And especially back then. Yeah, I can't imagine it was pleasant. No, I'm, I would rather go to one today than back then. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, I mean, same with a hotel, though, too. Yeah. Like, I think. <laughs> um, so the accusations of a conspiracy on both sides, because there were people that said, oh, you know, Jackson's team just made this up and Richard Lawrence was in on it. Everybody was crying conspiracy. But after the trial, it was pretty much accepted this was a lone gunman who came very close to changing history. Wow. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— we answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. History never says goodbye. It just says, see you later. Edward Galliano was right when he said that. Events keep happening over and over again in some form. And that's the reason I produce the podcast, My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. What is it? We take stories of history and apply them to the events of today to help you perhaps understand them better. We are also part of Airwave Media Network. I've been doing the program since 2006. That's a long time. And the show has a long name. My history can beat up your politics. Find me wherever you get podcasts. One of my favorite random things that I found while digging into this was from the diary of John Quincy Adams. Mm -hmm. 
he wrote after this happened, after the assassination attempt, that another member of the House came to him and said, hey, I think it would be proper for the House of Representatives to pass a resolution uh, expressing our abhorrence of the attempt to assassinate the president. And I think that you're the perfect person to do it. And John Quincy Adams basically gave him a Larry David style. Mm, I don't think so. Um, he says we shouldn't meddle with this politically. The guy's in prison. Let the law deal with it. Right. And then another guy comes up to Adams later and says, hey, shouldn't the House appoint a committee to investigate this assassination attempt that happened right outside our doors? Mm-hmm. And Adams says, mm, I don't think so. No, not necessary. It wouldn't be proper. That's all right. Yeah. I just love that Adams, who could speak in Congress for days or weeks straight, couldn't be bothered to waste Congress's time even acknowledging that this happened. Yeah. It's like, (sighs) better things to do. Yes. Now, let's get to my chat with David Brown about some other aspects of Andrew Jackson's life and legacy. Um, I talked to David last year, so our interview doesn't include uh, more recent events. Oh. Yeah. But, I mean, it includes, like, hundreds of years, so we'll be okay. (laughs) All right, so let's take a listen. Okay, wonderful. David Brown, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to talk about your book, The First Populist, The Defiant Life of Andrew Jackson. You almost couldn't find a more controversial figure to write about. What drew you to write about Jackson now? You know, I had a bit of a background in Jackson. Uh, I had done work um, on Jackson's opposition the Wake Party uh, for dissertation in graduate school. And so I was, I was familiar with Jackson. And uh, I, I think um, he'd always been there. Uh, I'd always been in touch with the Jackson books, the biographies, the historiography, and uh, became, I think, increasingly interested in the man over the last you know, decade or so because of his, uh, you know, his touchstone to American populism. And uh, oftentimes we, we look to the past to give us some, uh, whether it's guidance or some uh, you know, some information or some balance. So I was looking for Jackson to maybe give me some insight on maybe some contemporary issues in American politics in the 21st century, of all places. People, they have very strong emotions about Jackson. You know, uh, I, I think uh, a lot of people, they, they, they approach um, someone like Jackson from a real distance. And so they're infatuated with the fact that um, uh, he engaged in duels, uh, the fact that um, uh, he um, was in a bigamous marriage. And uh, the more outrageous the Jackson stories, true or not, uh, I think the more that that, that that seems to attract people. I'm, I'm not sure if that's a commentary on how we as a culture consume history, that um, uh, we, we, we want it to be uh, perhaps uh, not simply accurate, but um, entertaining, uh, and perhaps for some people, entertaining above all. So with Jackson, you mentioned that he was controversial, absolutely true, and I think for some people, there's a certain entertainment factor in that. Well, I feel personally a little bit attacked right now. Um, but I'm, I mean, I'm fascinated with Jackson. I, I feel like in our podcast in the past, we've kind of come at Jackson from the side, like a velociraptor in Jurassic Park, like not looking at the, the big issues, but looking at his role in, in the petticoat affair, uh, his relationship with Rachel and her parrot after he died. Things like that that look at his personality rather than kind of confronting the bigger issues about him. And that's why I'm excited to talk to you because, well, first of all, there are a lot of reasons I understand that people dislike Jackson. But first, I want to focus on the reasons that he's celebrated and understand them. 
Uh, what I hear Jackson Lever say over and over is that he spread democracy. He paid off the national debt. And I'm curious, what's the truth behind those things? And what what real value did they have at the time? Sure. Yeah. So I, I wouldn't say that he um, he spread democracy. I would say that um, he uh, he embodied or symbolized a democratic movement in America. Uh, he didn't create it, but he, he did come to, to be a very powerful, probably the most abiding symbol of it in a political sense uh, of the first half of the 19th century, if not even you know, beyond the 19th century. I think he's important because, you know, he is the first of our chief executives not to come from either Virginia or Massachusetts. So you have a, a strong and growing Western population. And in some sense, Jackson might be said to uh, embody their aspirations. People could look at Jackson, and even though Jackson was a bit of an aristocrat, quasi-aristocrat, even though Jackson was a, um, uh, a military hero, um, had a tremendous pedigree in public service, um, was not just a simple yeoman farmer, uh, one could still look at Jackson and, and see him in some sense as an embodiment of the West. And uh, it was a time, speaking the 1820s and 30s, when Jackson becomes uh, president, when the West was growing, it was, it was expanding, and I think it wanted its share in the Republic, not just to be you know, a supplier of all materials and resources, but to win political appointments as well. And of course, Jackson gets the greatest political appointment there is. He wins two national elections. Yeah, we have this image of Jackson as, as this domineering war hero. And that's sort of what put him on everybody's map. He, he was really a celebrity in his own time and in ways that others weren't, it seems. Did he do anything to cultivate that image himself? Uh, I think that he knew his value and his worth. Um, uh, this was impressed upon him, I think, by the culture, by the reaction that the culture had. And I think that, that, that he was sometimes careful uh, to curate that. Uh, he was invited to attend, to, to be the, um, the star, if you will, of, of, a, of, a, of a huge party, hundreds of people in Washington, D.C., uh, the home of then-Secretary of State John Quincy Adams, who he would, of course, later contest twice for the presidency. And uh, so many people wanted to see the general. And uh, he, he enjoyed putting on the uniform. Uh, he enjoyed um, being taken by the arm by Mrs. Adams and walking through uh, the rooms and, and, and being looked at and having people comment on him. And invariably, uh, we know this because people would later write about this and we see memoirs and, and, and diaries and whatnot, uh, they would remark about how Jackson was so poised, how um, uh, he, he, he looked like a leader. They expected, Jackson wrote this once, he said, they, they, they kind of expect to see me with a, um, uh, a scalping knife hmm. and a hatchet. They, they expect some backwards ruffian. And I think that he liked uh, to play uh, against that type. I think uh, in, in the book I make some comparison to Benjamin Franklin, who probably or very seldom ever wore a coonskin cap. <laughs> In, in, in Philadelphia. Um, but when he went to Paris, um, he did from time to time. And uh, I, I think in part because it's what the Parisians you know, kind of wanted to see, um, how they wanted to see an American. And I think it sort of helped uh, Franklin to be the genius, um, but the genius that did not need to intimidate because he was just a simple American from the backwoods. And Jackson was taken by the East Coast uh, you know, establishment as being sort of a, a frontier ruffian. And so when he shows up and he's polished, that makes quite a contrast. Yeah, just seeing this guy that is known for challenging people to a duel and then uh, seeing him among the elite and mingling like a Southern gentleman, that's certainly fascinating. 
Well, you know, Jackson, Jackson had to be a good politician. You don't, you don't rise up uh, as high as he did if, if you don't have some political acumen. His, his popularity was, was, was perhaps paramount. Maybe it was the most critical thing. But he knew how to work with it, and he knew how to cultivate it, and, and, and he knew how to use it as capital. So uh, he, he was, um, like Jefferson, I, I think someone who, who would not have liked to have thought of himself as a good politician, um, what would want to be, a, yeah, maybe a good statesman, but not a politician. But he was a very adept politician, very careful uh, in, in how uh, he sort of um, moved around Tennessee politics, um, sometimes could lose his head, but, but never, never seemed to go too far. Do you think that folks like Martin Van Buren, how much did the the political maneuvering of, of other people kind of help Jackson catapult himself to that next level where there's where there's not going to be any doubt, where the election's not going to be thrown to the House of Representatives, where he's going to win in a landslide? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think a very important thing was was the creation of a new party system, because uh, you, you had an older party system, sometimes known as the first party system, and uh, it had, for the most part, come to an end with um, the end of the presidency of, um, of Monroe uh, in 1824. So sometimes we call that the, the Virginia dynasty. Some people include Washington, some people don't because there's the hiccup of John Adams. But uh, 24 years of, um, of uh, Jefferson, Madison, and, and Monroe. And there was a desire on the part of Monroe and some others to, to sort of get beyond partisanship. And with the end of the Federalist Party, it seemed like there was just one party, that everybody was kind of a generic Jeffersonian. Mm-hmm. And so in 1820, Monroe runs for re-election, and he gets every electoral vote, except one. Uh, there was one electoral who threw, who threw one away for John Quincy Adams. I think he said that um, he, he wanted only George Washington to be the only president to, uh, to get a uh, unanimous electoral college vote. And so when Jackson ran for the first time in 1824, there were um, you know, four, four major candidates. And so that divided the vote up, and, and that meant that when no one received uh, an electoral college majority, the election was kicked to the House of Representatives. Jackson, with um, a plurality of the popular vote and the electoral vote, thought that he was due the presidency, um, but the House voted for John Quincy Adams. Uh, you mentioned uh, Van Buren. Van Buren played a very, very important role in, in helping to create a new partisan system in which um, there would basically be in the future um, two major candidates. Uh, had there been four candidates or five candidates in 1828, it's not clear that, that Jackson would have won. Mm. Uh, the election might have been kicked to the House of Representatives again. So, yes, Jackson is, is, is uh, uh, facing um, uh, uh, only one major figure, opponent in 1828, John Quincy Adams, the sitting president. But he would have defeated Quincy Adams, I think, in a straight-up election in 1824. So um, uh, I don't think that's the reason why or the only reason why. Jackson brings Van Buren into his cabinet as Secretary of State, but he did recognize the importance of, of uh, I think, the system of politics as it was maneuvering and evolving, and um, Van Buren's role in doing that for what, what, what is the Democratic Party today. Now, thinking about John Quincy Adams, is there something that you think is unique about him that made him sort of the perfect foil for Jackson or, or made him... Maybe the best opponent possible to defeat in that election of 1828. Well, um, the contrasts were there, and so if they were running against each other today, they they would be played off of each other. Pro- probably not unlike the way that they were played off before. Uh, that is regionally, uh, East Coast versus West frontier, if you will. Uh, 
Harvard-educated versus um, backwoods, although Jackson was educated. Jackson was a frontier lawyer. Jackson had read law. Jackson had been on the Tennessee Supreme Court. But, you know, if we're talking about a little bit of stereotyping here, that's the way it would be played. Um, one wag thinking uh, in the 1820s about the perfect pairing for president and vice president uh, made comments uh, about um, John Quincy Adams, who could write, and Andrew Jackson, who could fight. Mm. So that's, that's how this kind of you know, went down. The establishment, the East Coast, education, and the rising kind of roughhouse West. The echoes in modern politics are just so loud. And that, that brings me to something you talk about in the book, is the comparison between Jackson and, and Trump. Because a lot of people have made that comparison. I think Trump embraced that comparison. But you mentioned one huge difference is, is Jackson's resume. Mm. Senator, uh, judge, lawyer, general. Um, a big contrast between um, hotelier and reality show host. So sure. it just makes me think, have our standards for a populist dropped? Well, I think the culture is more money-centric. And that doesn't hold just for um, Donald Trump. You know, uh, in the 1990s, Ross Perot was, um, you know, touted as, as the billionaire populist. And, uh, and we've seen other um, people, whether it's entertainers or, uh, or extremely wealthy people, run for office or consider running for office or maybe build a platform for themselves for six months talking about how they might run for office. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so uh, I, think, I think that that's changed. Um, because as you, you, know, you, you mentioned, you know, uh, Jackson's was was largely um, a public service career. Um, uh, I mentioned you know he, he was a lawyer, um, but it's not you know it wasn't his his main identity. Um, and, and before you know he was he was an army in the U.S. Uh, excuse me, a general in the U.S. Army. He of course had, had been uh, involved in the Tennessee militia for years. Um, those were the avenues of uh, you know for respect mm-hmm. um, and uh, and public um, sometimes adulation. And so it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily being the wealthiest person. It was, um, it was parading with the militia. It was having some of those local connections. Jackson served in the House of Representatives. Uh, he was Tennessee's first representative. And so that would have been a big thing um, in, in that um, it was a signal that as a, as a young man, he had garnered respect. Whereas, you know, today, um, uh, if someone you know, wants, to, wants to think of themselves as a, as a source of power, um, they don't want to be a lowly freshman, you know, congressman or woman. And you mentioned respect, and that makes me think about honor and how much of the society that Jackson lived on was built upon honor. And that's where duels come into play. It seems like your your word, your reputation meant, meant everything. And, you know, you'd be willing to fight for that, to preserve that. That seems like, a to me, a big contrast between Jackson's time and, and a, a modern time. I and not just to bash on Trump, because that's not the intention here. I really want to look at how Jackson differs from him. And it seems to me that someone with Trump's maybe braggadocio or loose relationship to the truth uh, in, a, in a dueling society wouldn't have made it past the 1790s. And I don't know if, if that rings true or if uh, Jackson was just really good at fighting <laughs> and got through it or... or uh, how much honor really played into Jackson's rise? Yeah, so um, uh, I should mention that um, honor could be recognized and was was more often than not recognized in regard to dueling as actually not firing shots. Mm. 
And so, you know, for example, with, with, with Jackson's first duel, um, he had been, as a, as a young lawyer, embarrassed in court by a more, um, an older and more uh, adept uh, lawyer who, who kind of sported uh, and made fun of uh, some of Jackson's arguments. Mm-hmm. And so Jackson wanted to assert that he was uh, a gentleman. But what happened was that the handlers, um, and, and both parties probably knew that this was the way it would work out, um, worked it out. And so the, when, they, when they met on the dueling ground, it was already scripted, and they both fired their shots up in the sky. Um, they, they had worked out their differences. Maybe for the first time, Jackson's respect being recognized. Um, there's also an aspect of dueling that should be noted, and I, I think that that's, it was also a way to kind of draw class lines. Mm. And for example, there was a, um, when Jackson was an older man, there was a young man who, who wanted to engage him in a duel, and Jackson refused to. Because dueling is only for gentlemen, and Jackson refused to recognize that this man was a gentleman. So there, there, there are ways to assert one's prerogatives and one's role in a society. Maybe a fine house, um, maybe um, a horse, maybe a nice carriage, and the prerogative to engage in duels, which, uh, you know, as you know, could be dangerous business. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, and Jackson was shot in a duel and, of course, survived this. Um, but probably the most adept duelist is the person who who could get it worked out because you know nobody nobody could survive you know five ten fifteen duels because you're just going to get you're just going to get killed one of those days. Mm. Yeah, I know that um, Jackson has said, "I was born for a storm, and a calm does not suit me," and he he sounds like a lot. I'm wondering how much of his presidency, how much of the the controversy he was involved in, um, did he create? storms for storm's sake because of his personality uh yes that's a that's a good uh that's a good way to put it i think it's a good observation i i, I don't want to suggest that he was he was simply being a prima donna because <laughs> um, because an example that comes to mind is um in the bank war when he um tells his secretary of the treasury not to put um any more funds into the national bank he had great concerns about the national bank that it could um, overturn the republic. It was a um, uh, government-chartered corporation, uh, but largely overseen by private interests and um, oftentimes private capital. And it, it did, on occasion, involve itself in the political process. Jackson was probably aware, for example, that um, uh, the National Bank had uh, put some funds towards uh, the re-election campaign of John Quincy Adams. Mm-hmm. So it was that question about what will predominate in this country. Well, the bank rule... Or well, the government rule. So uh, the bank is the bank is vetoed, and that was fine. That was within the constitutional parameters, um, but it had four years to go. And Jackson wanted to ensure that it didn't have much capital to play around with, to, to get involved in politics, to try to maybe you know um, buy congressmen um, or or newspapers and, and try to win a, a reprieve from the veto. So he sent uh, the money other places. Uh, rather than the National Bank. He wasn't supposed to do that. Mm. Um, the bank had a contract with the government. And so uh, his, his Secretary of the Treasury wasn't going to do that. So we got another one. Uh, <laughs> the second one, uh, William Duane, wouldn't do that. He fired him. And then he finally put um, you know, someone pretty, pretty close to him in that position to do so. Um, he earned a, uh, a censor from the U.S. Senate for doing that. The only chief executive to this day who's ever been censored by the U.S. Senate, um, he, w- he was he was accused of um, going beyond his constitutional 
um, uh, powers to do so. So Jackson didn't have to do that. Um, most people in Congress, uh, most people in his cabinet said the bank has a contract for the last four years. Let the money go there. We'll just ride this out. Um, but Jackson picks this fight. Uh, but he doesn't do it just to, just to put himself in the limelight. Uh, it does that in negative and positive ways, depending upon where you're at with Jackson. But I think that he does it because he, he is sincerely concerned about the bank. Um, Jackson personalized everything, hmm. and, the Jack, and, and, and the bank became uh, a personal enemy of Jackson. And so Jackson was interested in doing whatever it took to neutralize the bank. Now, I'm curious. I see that a lot of people connect Jackson's war on the bank with the, the Panic of 1837. And I'm not sure how direct that relationship was. What role do you think? I mean, he's celebrated for paying off the national debt. Uh, people talk about, oh, he's the only president to do that. What lines do you kind of draw between Jackson's actions and, and uh, the finances of the country uh, soon after? Yeah, you know, um, uh, erasing a debt, um, that can be overrated. So, so um, Alexander Hamilton, for example, when he was Secretary of the Treasury, he said, you know, um, we, we don't actually have to pay these debts off. All we have to do is just make our, our monthly payments. Hmm. And uh, I think what he, was, what, what he was getting at is, is the idea that um, if the United States can, can move beyond its sort of you know, colonial infrastructure and apparatus um, more quickly because it can build um, roads and canals and uh, put up lighthouses and whatnot for shipping uh, more quickly because it borrows money. What's wrong with that? Isn't that good for, for, for development? The Jeffersonians had a different idea about it. But, you know, when, when the Jeffersonians had uh, an attempt to, um, to make the Louisiana Purchase, they, they happily went into debt because they said, uh, we believe in agrarianism and this opportunity might not come around again. So, you know, um, I, I, I guess I think about, I'm not sure if this is proper, but on the micro level, and, um, you know, we, we may say, well, you know, maybe we, we'd like our government to be out of debt. Um, but I, I wonder how many of us, you know, we own our houses, we own our college educations, we own our cars, as opposed to yeah, maybe going into some debt. Um, right. Jackson's role, um, uh, it was a philosophy. Uh, like Jefferson, uh, he, he wanted to see uh, the eradication of the debt. Does it have anything to do with uh, uh, the Panic of 1837? The consensus of historians is that uh, it, it did, that uh, the bank had served as a, um, kind of a, a useful regulatory break on excessive speculation. And without the bank there, um, that speculation really took hold. Much as Jefferson had wanted to see take hold, in that people were going off, you know, to the West, and uh, they were um, they were buying, they were purchasing land, but also they were speculators, uh, and that sort of went against the Jeffersonian vision. Uh, speculation that was supposed to be more in Hamilton's line, um, but people like Jackson, um, you know, they 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 were land speculators as well, uh, would buy up tens of thousands of acres, if not more, uh, in places like present-day you know, Alabama, Tennessee. And um, you know, that required paper money, uh, that required contracts, that required speculation. And the National Bank could serve as a break against that by um, uh, ensuring that, that banks, frontier banks, or other, all banks, always carried you know, some money in reserve, didn't lend out too much, because that's mm -hmm. how the banks were making the money, was by lending out all this money. And, and it created a bubble, too much, um, uh, too much money out there, too much speculation, too much paper money, and then the bubble burst. So, um, yeah, Jackson, Jackson's policies 
probably did have something to do with with that panic. Okay. Now I want to. I don't want to shy away from one of the the darkest parts of Jackson's legacy, and that's the Indian Removal Act, um, because for many people, Jackson is just synonymous with his his actions regarding Native Americans with the Trail of Tears. Uh, they've been described as anything from from genocidal on one side to people excusing it as just simply obeying the will of the people. What do you see as his impact on Native Americans and, and coming from Jackson personally? You talked about how personally he fought against the National Bank. What was his role in, in Indian removal? Yeah, so, so his role um, was um, in 1830. This is early in his presidency. Uh, he, he, he uh, in his annual message to Congress, uh, embedded in it was a uh, uh, a prompt for Congress, more specifically uh, people of his persuasion, who constitute the majority, to pass a bill that would allow for um, not it wasn't removal on the surface. In mm-hmm. that, it wasn't a bill that said that 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 uh, the Indian peoples have to be removed, uh, but rather that. Um, Congress would, would, would put forth money and negotiations would take place. Obviously, this, this resulted in removal. So it was sort of removal by another name. But even then, it demonstrates how Jackson, how the country was sort of careful in how they, how they approached this, that, that this was extremely controversial. And um, it barely passed. I, I think the vote was something like 102 to 97. There were a lot of people in Congress. There were a lot of Americans uh, primarily in the North, who who were not particularly supportive of, of Indian removal, so Jackson puts it on the agenda for the national government uh, in a way that hadn't been before. Um, having said that, though, um, a state like like Georgia had been um, removing its Native Americans and passing laws that violated the rights of these Native peoples, and uh, you know, government had done very little about this um, before Jackson as well. So. In one sense, you know, removal takes place under Jackson and under this provision um, that Congress is going to pass to allocate money um, and strike deals with, with, with people who it will designate as being the leaders of these Native peoples, even if it's fraudulent. Uh, in another respect, um, Jackson puts into motion a policy that I suspect previous presidents would have put into motion had the United States in the 1790s in the 18 teens, had the military power to to do so. Uh, mm-hmm. You look through the writings of, of Washington, Jefferson, and a couple of others, and um, uh, they, they think that removal is, you know, sort of preordained. It's destiny. It's 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 fated. Um, but they lack the resources to do it. Jackson has those resources, and so Jackson puts it into play. So 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 Jackson deserves. Uh, I think all the opprobrium that he gets, um, but should probably be um, a little bit more widely shared. Where Jackson also falls short is um, is, is when when he uh, insists that um, he he's doing this to preserve the native peoples and their cultures, because when the removal begins to transpire, and this is in the 1830s, and and sometimes people uh, think about only the Trail of Tears. Uh, in the Cherokees, but there were there were other groups as well. Um, mm. In the removal process, um, Jackson and his successor Martin Van Buren, they they never allocated adequate resources to conduct the um, uh, the forced migration, the forced march, 
And so thousands of Native Americans died. Um, mm. Some in wintertime, um, exposure, lack of food, lack of blankets, lack of transportation. So this money that was allocated, removal was done in a very, you know, kind of um, outsourced way. And so rather than have a more government hands-on and, and, and more resources put into it, um, contractors came in. And contractors did a lot of the overseeing of the removal process, and they got their contracts by being the lowest bidder. Mm. While researching the book, did you come across anything about Jackson that, that really surprised you or took you in a, in a direction that you didn't expect? Mm. Uh, I, I think uh, I, wasn't, I wasn't prepared for the, if I could put it this way, the capaciousness of, of Jackson's mind, like um, some of the um, images of Jackson that you and I were discussing earlier. Um, I, I sort of you know, uh, came to Jackson as something of a, um, of a, of a national hero, uh, of, of a politician, um, and maybe a hothead. And uh, in measures, uh, he, he, he was those things, but he wasn't just that. And so really digging into Jackson's writings, his letters, his correspondence, um, I, I got a, a better sense of the way that he approached issues, um, how he unpacked ideas, how he constructed arguments. And I, I think uh, he, was, he was more of a lawyer and, and had more of a, a resourceful mind than mm. um, I had expected coming into the project. What, what do you really think that we can learn from Jackson, and what does he have to lend to this moment in history? Well, I, I think for me, um, and, and I find this not just with, with Jackson, um, but when I, when I look to the past, I oftentimes realize how self-centered you know, I am, our culture is, and mm. how we think oftentimes that we're the first people to, to kind of go through this, or go through this, whatever this is, to this degree. And uh, oftentimes I, I find that, that, you know, that there's, that there's precursors. Um, and uh, with Jackson, um, I knew in a general sense uh, about populism, um, but, you know, to dig into it and to look at Jackson's life um, and some of the people around Jackson and some of you know, the people who, who supported Jackson, I think it gave me some, some you know, vantage point into my own culture, uh, into why people um, you know, gravitate to, to, to certain personalities, to certain heroes, um, why Americans um, prefer you know, candidate A to candidate B. Um, and I don't say that in, in, in any kind of a, of a, of a clinical sense. Um, I approach this stuff with, with humility because it, um, you know, in the best of all possible worlds, it can enlarge you know, my perspective and help me to see things more clearly. And, and so if I'm thinking about populism in my own day, um, to come into touch with examples of populism in the American past, um, sometimes it has that it has that effect, and I think in this sense, um, I, I I think it has. And uh, there may be only one Andrew Jackson, but but I think that there's a populist persuasion, and I think that Jackson touched upon it and was able to tap into it and was able to make political capital of it. Um, others have done that as well, uh, not just in our own times, Donald Trump. And so I find that, that when I'm thinking about American history or when, 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 I'm, when I'm in a class with students, you know, the, these, these examples, they just begin to, to come up because they're, they're, they're things that, you know, I, I might not have noticed earlier because um, I simply hadn't dug into them before. You wrote about Jackson that he could be a singularly devout and fierce hater, inspiring in turn the devout and fierce hatred of others. Is, 
is that what populism is for the most part? Is it collective hate? No, no, it doesn't. It doesn't have to be collective hate. Um, hate doesn't have to factor in at all. Um, I think, in simplest terms, um, populism is the idea that um, that the people should predominate, that, that that the people should rule. And so, uh, in our own country, uh, you know, presumably that would be our elected officials speaking through us. And if we don't think that they're speaking the right language, the right dialects, we have an opportunity through elections to do something about that. So, in a sense, it's it's kind of a uh, the idea of populism also suggests that, that there's something um, that, uh, that might be standing in the way of popular democracy or popular rule. And so uh, Jackson gave the people an enemy, um, the National Bank. If things you know, aren't going well for you, if things aren't going right, and Jackson was reflecting off of another panic, the Panic of 1819, which is also uh, you know, very um, destabling to lots of populations, but particularly Western populations, mm. the bank was a suitable enemy. So whether it's um, a national bank or whether it's, it's concern over, over military dictatorship uh, or whether it's, it's concerns over corporate power, um, those are sometimes the culprits um, that, uh, that, that, that populist movements are designed to counter. Um, so, uh, you know, with, with, with Ross Pro, perhaps it's the notion that there are these um, elite politicians and elite corporate managers who have gotten together and um, um, under their... Uh, tutelage, um, American jobs, you know, we're going overseas. I, I think I think Pro made that comment about the great sucking sound you hear is American jobs going to Mexico. I think he said that, I think in 92, when he was running for the presidency, like the first time. Um, so so populism doesn't have to be about about hate. Um, uh, in a pure sense, it, it's it's merely about the notion that, that, that people, uh, the, the people will rule. You know, there's a there's a, there's a tension, in a sense. Our, our founding documents, um, at least you know, some of them suggest that that, that we should you know have that kind of a government, um, a, a republic, a people's government. Um, but in other 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 ways, you know, like the Constitution, um, might suggest something maybe a little bit differently. So the founders were a little bit wary about popular democracy, and so it was that trick about how do you create a republic, a people's government. Because the American Revolution just happened. You're not going to create an aristocracy. But how do you create a republic that will not overheat, that will not um, become too fractious? And oh, I think what a question. Founders, yeah, and, and, and I think for the founders, it was to create a republic in which there was some very close connection between us and our leaders. Uh, for example, the House of Representatives. Um, every two years, we can vote these people in or out. And then more distance, uh, for example... The office of the presidency um, and uh, uh, and the Senate. You talk about having a, a common enemy and, and Jackson building that with the with the National Bank and I mean the American Revolution. Uh, Americans were still very divided. There were lots of loyalists, but getting all the thirteen colonies together to kind of compromise on fighting that common enemy of, of you know Britain. Do we need a common enemy in order to do great things? Is that um, is that just built into our fabric or humanity? You know, uh, you, you say to do great things. And, and so uh, presumably to do great things would take great effort and maybe great sacrifice, um, whether it's at the state level or uh, on the individual level. And so uh, perhaps, perhaps the answer is yes. Perhaps 
there needs to be something out there, whether it's um, a war, whether it's a, a tremendous you know, economic downturn, um, that uh, something like that, that, that would get Americans to have a consensus, to agree to, uh, to sacrifice and to work towards a common goal that we, I'll say more or less, believe in. And you know, I think that probably, probably makes sense. You know, if the argument is that, you know, um, 80% of us should do something, should sacrifice um, uh, for, for 20%, um, maybe in reality, maybe we should, depending upon the situation. But that can be a very difficult thing to convince 80%, 50% to do. Um, self-interest, for better or for worse, does seem to factor into the equation. Uh, can you tell us what you're working on next? Yeah, um, I'm working on a, uh, a book on um, the country, the United States, in 1854. And mm -hmm. the reason I picked 1854 is because in January of 1854, um, the Kansas-Nebraska Act is introduced in the U.S. Senate. The Kansas-Nebraska Act, it um, was extremely contentious. And um, uh, the result is going to be, uh, well, you know, secession, civil war, six and seven years later. Not mm -hmm. just because of that, but... but I think in large part because of it, what it did was it took an area, um, Jefferson's old Louisiana Purchase, which had been closed to the institution of slavery, and it, um, it allowed um, slavery to, to go there if, uh, if the people who migrated there wanted it to be there. Uh, it was very radical. Um, the upshot is that um, there were two parties at that time. There was still the Whig Party, which was the party that was Jackson's major opposition. Uh, it dies out because of this. And a radical Republican Party is born. Um, I look at um, I look at Henry David Thoreau, uh, who published Walden that year and, and and was giving speeches about what was happening. Uh, Emerson. Uh, I look at um, um, Harriet Tubman, who uh, in December of that year um, uh, goes back to Maryland, which she had already escaped, and she rescues uh, her her three brothers uh, at Christmas time. Um, it's a it's a, it's a political history. It's a cultural history. It's a liter literary history about um, all that happens in that um, uh, really you know, pretentious year for this country. Mm. Uh, where can our listeners find more about you? Um, I think I've got a webpage at my college, which is Elizabethtown College, um, and I'm in the history department there. And um, uh, you, know, you can go to Amazon, and I think if you click my name, I, I think some of the things that I've written, I think, I think they'll come up. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us and, and sharing your insights. And yeah, I look forward to learning more about 1854. Thanks, Howard. I enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Y'all should check out David Brown's book, The First Populist, The Defiant Life of Andrew Jackson. If you like what you heard, spread the word. And if you'd like to support what we do and get a little extra content, consider joining our Patreon family. You can see a full unedited video interview of my talk with David Brown and more. That's awesome. Yes. I will leave you with this. At the end of his life, Andrew Jackson said that one of his greatest regrets of his presidency is that he didn't hang John C. Calhoun for treason. Wow. Yeah. That's your regret. Yes. <sighs> in our next episode, we are going to look at John C. Calhoun. Not directly in the eyes because we might turn to stone. Right. But we're going to do a dive, a deep dive, a literal deep dive. Mm -hmm. to literal, huh? Yes, to explore a little something he left behind. Okay. Yeah. What is it? You'll have to wait and see. I see. Yeah. Right. 
Thank you for plotting along with us. Thank you for listening. Holy horse whip.